0: Hi, everyone. My name is Tracy Matthews. I'm married to Rob, and we have one son, Henry, who is nine. We're part of the Choirims Neighborhood Group, and we miss seeing you all and passing the peace of Christ in person. Now you're welcome to stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture is Philippians three seventeen through 4, 1. who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You can be seated. Hello, City Church. This is Mitchell Carter. For any of you who don't know me, I'm an assistant pastor here At City Church, and this morning we're continuing our study in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Today we come to a passage that's both heavy and beautifully encouraging. And as we do that, I'm again struck with the privilege that it is to be able to proclaim God's word to you. I know that it's no small thing to tell you what God says to you in his word. So as I do that, would you please pray with me? Father, we pray, we ask you, that you would proclaim your word now to your people. Give me clarity and confidence in your word. We pray also for those who are listening. Holy Spirit, open the eyes of your people. Soften the hearts of your people. Give them the ability and posture, not just to hear your word, but to receive it and obey it. We long to know Jesus and to know the power of his resurrection. Lord, we know that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they searched the scriptures but did not come to him whom the scriptures pointed to. Would it not be so with us? Would you help us to see the way this passage points to the glory of Jesus and let us run to him to find rest and salvation and joy all in him? We ask for much, but we ask in confidence because we come in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul has been encouraging people in the church in Philippi, and by extension us, to persevere. We've seen that all along the way. Chapter one, his opening prayer, he says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, that it might grow. In verse 25 of chapter 1, he says that he knows he will remain in this life to work, he says, for your progress and joy in the faith. Verse 27 of chapter 1 opens the body of the letter by telling us that our manner of life, the way we live, should be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what we learn is that a life worthy of the gospel, a life that's transformed by Jesus, looks like striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, incorporating the humble mindset of Jesus Christ, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, increasing in the knowledge of Jesus and the power of his resurrection, and pressing on. the prize of Jesus Christ all of these point to progress to growth this has been the drum that Paul's been beating for this whole letter it's the call to discipleship to growing in your faith rather than being stagnant to growing in your knowledge and love and obedience of Jesus rather than saying well we're married guess we're done He's telling us to make progress, to work, to grow all toward Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep going, he says. Keep moving. Keep straining toward Jesus. We are not yet complete, but we press on toward Christ in the Christian life. And we come to our passage today and we are immediately confronted with the fact that some people don't persevere. Some people, in the church, not outside of it, some of us don't press on toward Christ. They don't stay the course. They don't attain the prize of the person of Jesus. Paul says in verse 18, many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. The scriptures have many different descriptions of these people that Paul is talking about. In his parable of the soils, Jesus says that this is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Or another way he describes it is that it is someone who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word and it proves unfruitful. Jesus later describes these people as tares or weeds in a field of wheat. They look very much like true Christians for a while, but eventually their fruit proves that they aren't. The Apostle John says it like this in 1 John 2. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us they would have persevered. They would have pressed on. There is no possible way to read the New Testament and walk away without realizing that there are some people within Christ's church who have no saving knowledge of Jesus. And Paul comes to the end of this long call to persevere, this call to make progress in maturity, to run toward Jesus... And he says, I have tears in my eyes as I'm writing this because some of you won't. And so as he begins to unfold this for us, Paul first tells us the end or the outcome for those who walk as enemies of the cross. Then he describes in three parallel phrases what they're like, their nature. Then in verses 20 to 21, he contrasts that with true Christians. And he points to two things. He points to their home and their hope. And God is so wise in the scriptures. He's so discerning. He's so intent not to break a bruised reed or to smother a smoldering wick. The very thing he knows will cause many of us to shudder. Being immature and incomplete Christians like we are, that very thing that will cause us to shudder as we read these words, he addresses that head on in verse 21. And then we're going to end coming back in verse 1 of chapter 4 to this call for perseverance. So let's dive in. The first thing Paul notes after he tells us about these enemies of the cross of Christ is their outcome. He says their end is destruction. Just in case you read this and first wondered if he was talking about maybe wayward Christians or slow-growing Christians who are somehow construed as enemies of the cross at some point, he lets you know that that's not it. These are not folks who will spend eternity in the joy of the presence of Jesus Christ. Rather, the outcome of their life will be destruction. Hell. They have pitted themselves against God, and God tells us that he opposes the proud. After that serious look at the outcome of this kind of life, Paul gives us a description of of that way of life in three phrases. He says, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. Now these three phrases he gives us, they're not separable. They all explain one another. It's not three different ways uh, to look at these people. The first phrase is the one that's the most telling of the three, and it's the one that we're going to take the longest look at. He says, Their God is their belly. What does that mean? How can someone's God be their belly? In the ancient world, the different parts of your body were often thought of as the seat of different aspects of the person. So when the Bible talks about the heart, it isn't usually talking about that organ in the middle of your body that is pumping blood through your body. It's talking about a person's will, the decisions that they make. Similarly here, the belly is a picture of your cravings, of your appetites. It's not just a desire for food that is going to go into your belly. It's talking about your cravings as a person, your gut desires. And what Paul says about these enemies of the cross of Christ is that they have made their cravings, what they feel in their gut, their God. Martin Luther, who's a German reformer in the 16th century, summarizes the biblical idea of idolatry like this. He says, whatever your heart clings to and trusts in that is really your God and so these enemies of the cross of Christ are people in the church who treat their cravings their gut feelings like their God their heart clings to them and they trust in them they obey their gut the only problem with that approach is the Christian doctrine of sin God teaches us that our cravings, our gut desires are broken, are twisted because of sin. We long for things and desire things that are bad for us. They will destroy us in the end. The prophet Jeremiah says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Proverbs 14, 12 says there is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way to death. Following your cravings, obeying your innate desires, listening to your gut will lead to your destruction. The call for Christians in light of the doctrine of sin is to submit our desires, our cravings, our gut feelings to Christ. This is what Paul's been talking about ever since chapter 2. Your cravings are inherently selfish they will always tend toward your own interests. This is why it takes the working of God in our hearts for us to look not to our own interests, but the interests of others. And the preeminent picture of someone who did not treat their belly, their cravings as their God, is Jesus who says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Paul tells us that Jesus laid aside his rights, his status, and made himself a servant. He humbled himself all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is why these people are called enemies of the cross of Christ. It's not because they're openly mocking Jesus or claiming that he wasn't God. It does not seem to be that they deny the effectiveness of Jesus' death. It's because by the way they live their lives, they reject the way of the cross. They reject the humility of submitting themselves to the will of God and the good of others. They have made their own bellies their God. They have taken on a worldly mindset, not the mindset of Jesus. And so this comment about them glorying in their shame shows that they have flipped Jesus' life on its head. Jesus took on what was considered shameful, suffering and death on a cross. And Paul has already told us in chapter 2 that that became his glory. Paul says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. These people are claiming glory for themselves here. And now, and God says that in the end, those things will be to their shame. The enemies of the cross of Christ that Paul is talking about aren't those who are openly rebellious against God. It's just people who stop listening to Jesus and start listening to themselves. They have shut their ears to God's word. And shut their hearts from submission to Him. Have you seen this in yourself? Have you seen moments where you stopped listening to the voice of Jesus and instead trusted your own gut? Have you looked at the direction of your life and felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and said no? Have you read things in Scripture and thought, no way, that can't be right? And the unspoken follow-up in your mind is, because it doesn't feel right. That's not to say there aren't confusing and difficult things in Scripture, but it's God's Word we can't write it off and go with our gut. We must submit ourselves to God. So that is Paul's description of the enemies of the cross. In verses 18 and 19. Starting in verse 20, Paul contrasts the enemies of the cross with true believers. He doesn't give them a title, but just says, our He's reaching back to the first part of chapter 3 when he talks about those who know Christ, who have received his righteousness and who are found in him. This is so important for us to remember because as we study this letter, those words from the beginning of chapter 3 are two weeks ago for us. Uh, But for the hearers of this letter, they were just a couple of minutes ago. In this warning about following our own cravings or desires, Paul is not nullifying what he said in verses 1 through 11. That we are not saved by anything we do, but by the righteousness of Jesus which comes to us through faith. You are not a Christian because you persevere. You are a Christian because you trust in Jesus and have been united to him. Your justification, remember this from last week. This is the declaration that God makes that you are right with him because... You have the righteousness of Jesus. That justification is not a result of your perseverance. The scriptures are abundantly clear about that. But they are also abundantly clear that all who are truly justified will persevere in the faith. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so, that's why Paul can say this about true Christians in contrast to the enemies of the cross. Read with me in verse 20. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul doesn't describe the nature of true believers the way that he does those who walk as enemies because he spent the entire letter describing it. The nature of the life of a true Christian is one who has the mindset of Christ in his humility and servanthood. Everything in this letter revolves around what we learned about Christ in the middle of chapter 2. True believers submit themselves to the will and word of God, just as Christ did. But Paul doesn't focus on that here. Instead, he encourages believers by telling them why they don't let their bellies become their God. He first points to our home. He says our citizenship is, is in heaven. Richie Sessions talked about this idea of citizenship when he preached on chapter 1, verse 27. But here, Paul doesn't talk about our citizenship, our belonging, being in the gospel like he did in chapter 1. He says our citizenship, our true home, is in heaven. That is where you belong. That is, to put it in the words of Hebrews 11, your true country, your true home. It's in heaven. And then he turns from describing our home and describes our hope. He describes our posture as Christians right here and right now. We are waiting. Last week we talked about running and striving and working in a direction. This week, just a few verses later, Paul is talking about waiting. And he's using these two metaphors to describe the same thing. Last week, he used the metaphor of running to remind us that we have not yet reached the prize. You are not perfectly mature. You are not a finished product. God still has a lot to do with you to complete the work he began in you. This week, Paul says we are waiting again to remind us that we are not yet complete. So what will the completion of God's work look like in you? He tells us. He says, and from it, from heaven, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power of that enables him even to subject all things to himself. One aspect of the completion of God's work in us will be a renewed body, a glorious body like his. And you might think, what does that have to do with what we've been talking about? First, it is true that we will be given a renewed body that is not subject to decay and sickness and death. For those who suffer under terminal pain and sickness, for everyone right now who's going to great measures to be sure that they don't contract a virus, rejoice that your suffering will be over when you receive your resurrected body. That is the focus of Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians 15. But that doesn't seem to be his focus here. He doesn't seem to be, when he talks about these glorified bodies, focused on our physical bodies. Remember his description of the enemies of the cross above. He said their God is their belly. Here, just a couple verses later, he talks about the transformation of our lowly body and the subjection of all things to him. As you thought earlier about how easy it is for your cravings to control you, there ought to be a note of frustration. How hard it is to control my lust. It is such a battle to manage my tongue. My anger fumes up again and again. I can't get my drinking under control. Paul says in Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer here is Jesus. Jesus will come to renew your body. Jesus will come to remake your desires. Jesus will come to transform your cravings. As you wrestle and struggle and strive to follow after Jesus and submit yourself to his will and his word, you must have your eyes on the hope that the struggle is short. The war that wages inside of you is but a moment, Christian. When Jesus, your Savior, comes, he will come in power. He will come with the power to subject, to submit all things to himself. And the glorious promise that Paul reminds us of here is that he has the power to wrench your heart and make it work the way it was always intended to work, to crave and desire and long for the things of God like it was always meant to do. That is your future. That is what your Savior is going to do when he comes. Just one quick application of this. This is one way that you ought to read the Gospels. As you read and you marvel at the love and compassion and zeal and meekness of Jesus, the scriptures beckon you to see your future self there. It's not that you will become God But you will be conformed to his image. You will have the character and heart and desires of Jesus. Jesus, the God-man, is a picture for us of what humanity was always meant to be. And so he is a picture for us of what we will become. Our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body. Yes, the hope of the gospel is that we will be with Jesus. He is our prize. The person of Jesus, right relationship with the triune God of the Bible, is our ultimate goal and our great hope. But brothers, of, brothers and sisters, the hope of the gospel is not just what we will be given, but what we will become. We will become people whose hearts are no longer deceitful above all things. We will become people whose default position is love and patience and joy. We will become people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so it is with that hope, with that future-looking hope and with that knowledge that we wait upon our Savior And as we wait, Paul gives us this command in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord as you wait. Stand firm, submitting your cravings and desires to God's will. Stand firm in the faith, striving with one another side by side for progress and joy in the gospel. Stand firm. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would work in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. We pray that you would transform our hearts even now. Help us long more and more for Jesus and desire sin less and less. Don't let us be slaves to our passions, to our cravings. Give us endurance as we stand firm in the faith. Give us hope in what we will become, hope that helps us strive after you. Do these things in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.